Well, yesterday, uh, my daughter, Faith, had an interesting uh, experience. Uh, she works at AMC Theaters, and uh, when I picked her up uh, last night, she was kind of telling me this, uh, this story, and I thought it uh, provided a perfect illustration for what I'm going to be talking about here uh, at the beginning of the message. So evidently, a young boy, uh, she was guessing maybe 10 or 12 years old, came up to her at the counter and said he had, he had dropped his icy and uh, could he get another cup? And she said, well, what size was it? And he said, medium. Well, they don't sell ices in the medium. It's either large or small. And she said it was either large or small. And he said, oh, it was large, I guess, right? Or small. He said, oh, it was small. It was small, you know. So she gave him the cup. Well, then later one of her coworkers came up and said that the young boy had previously come to them, to that coworker, and said he wanted to buy an Icy, but all he had was $2, and that wasn't enough to buy an Icy. I think Icy's are, are they up to like $200 now at the movie theater? But, but anyway, he, his $2 wouldn't buy him an Icy at the theater, so he turned him away. And uh, obviously, this uh, little boy was, uh, was lying. And, you know, I got to thinking, what, what does it tell you about our culture when 10- and 12-year-olds will lie with just such ease, you know, just such ease? I saw an article several years ago on CNN entitled, How to Know When You're Being Lied To. In the article, it says, liars are, quote, good actors and lack emotions such as guilt, end quote. You think? <laughs> I mean, they probably spent millions of dollars on that study to come up with that, uh, that conclusion. But anyway, the article talks about a new approach uh, to lie detecting known as cognitive load interviewing. And I know we've got some law enforcement folks or former law enforcement folks in our midst, so maybe you've heard about this, but it's kind of a new technique that involves asking questions, setting tasks within the questions, and uh, seeking more detail, which essentially means overloading someone's brain as they provide the information. And so as they respond, they inevitably drop verbal clues of any deception and Police investigators are veering away from, you know, the, the old school watching people sweat and using polygraphs in favor of this new technique, according to the articles. And supposedly by training authorities across a range of countries even in this new technique, lie detection rates in uh, trials have risen from 72% uh, up from 58% when using traditional polygraph methods. So one expert said, quote, truth tellers are more often detailed than liars, whereas liars tend to say as little as possible. Kind of makes sense to me. Uh, when someone has something to hide, they'll also be more likely to justify what they do say, in other words, being defensive. Uh, they will be on the lookout for a reaction, and they will use fragmented sentences when they can. This according to R. Edward Gieselman a UCLA psychology professor who was leading this study and this new technique. But, you know, isn't it telling that we have an entire industry that has formed based on the task of trying to tell when someone is lying? But I guess it really shouldn't surprise us in this age of global deception. You've heard me say many times that the Bible warns in 2 Timothy 3.13 that deception will grow worse and worse and worse. So who can you trust anymore? You know, we're in the age, uh, in the midst of an epidemic of deception. Uh, these are difficult days, to say the least. We're in a battle. It's a battle between good and evil. 
between God and Satan, between the prince of peace and the prince of the power of the air, between light and darkness, truth and deception. And in this age of deceit, it's hard to know who to trust anymore. Well, I want to take us back a thousand years before Christ to another battle that was about to take place. King David was leading his troops into battle against a neighboring enemy. And before he does, the people assemble with him in the sanctuary for prayer. Not a bad idea, right? So this is a, a continuing our series of selected psalms, and this is the fourth psalm that we've looked at uh, so far, and it's also the third psalm of David. I'm just kind of following my heart and looking at psalms that I know have meant a lot to me uh, through the ages, and so far three of the four have been by David. Now, that's not too surprising uh, because half of the psalms, 75 of the 150, were written by David, so at least statistically about half of the messages ought to be from a Davidic psalm. So far, I'm a little ahead of that curve, so I've got to make a point to try to find some non-Davidic psalms in the coming weeks. But, uh, but when the battle is raging, or when the battle is about to rage, who do you trust? Who do you trust? You know, this Wednesday in part six of What in the World is Going On, our midweek service, I'm going, going to address, can you trust the government? And uh, so that ought to be interesting. Um, but, and we talked a little bit about that last Wednesday. I gave you some scripture that talk about trusting the government. But this particular psalm, Psalm 20, is a powerful reminder that in the midst of a battle, there's at least one person we know we can trust. And he's not a person, though he came in the form of a person, put on human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I'm talking about God. God is who we can trust. Let me give you some <clears throat> background before we take a look at this short psalm. As I mentioned, this was written by David. It's one of those royal psalms. We talked about that at the beginning of this series a few weeks ago. Royal psalms. There's 10 of them in the book of Psalms. They're grouped not by their literary characteristic, but by their content. And they all have as their life setting some event in the history of Israel. And, and usually it's David, but not always. And it could be some departure for battle like we're seeing here, or some ascension to the throne. But in a royal psalm, the king of Israel is the one who takes center stage. And that's certainly the case in Psalm 20 uh, with David. So it was about a thousand years before Christ. As I said, they're heading in to battle. And, you know, they, they pray for victory over the enemy. So he's, he's headed out. Before he gets to the battlefield, he stops in the sanctuary where he was joined by the congregation of people, many of his people who joined with him and interceded for him. And, uh, you know, they, they wanted to pray that their king, their leader, would be victorious in this upcoming uh, battle. So, if, as you recall, psalms are written in, in poetic musical form with stanzas, you know, just as when we sing here, we put the stanzas or verses on the screen, and you sing one verse at a time, and then the chorus, and sometimes a bridge. Do they have bridges back in the Psalms days? I don't know. We just invented those. Yeah, we just invented those. I mean, they had bridges that you could go over. 
uh, like the one that is being worked on interminably at uh, County Line Road and I-25. But anyway, uh, but I'm talking about a different kind of bridge. But in, in the Psalms, they would break them up into stanzas, and this are the three stanzas in this psalm. You can't really tell it from necessarily our English translation, and the verses don't always correspond to the stanzas, because the verses were added many, many hundreds of years later. But there are three stanzas in Psalm 20. Verses 1 through 5 are stanza 1, the intercession. And then verses 6 through 8, the assurance. So they pray, that's the intercession. Then they, get, they express their assurance that God will hear them. And then they repeat the intercession at the end. So it kind of is a bookend, uh, if you will. So I want us to break this short psalm down into five reasons that we can trust God. As we kind of put ourselves back a thousand years before Christ, uh, it's, a, it's a, obviously a different day, pre-modern era. They're about to go out into battle. They pray, and in their prayer, we can see some implicit reasons that they, and by extension us too, should trust God. The first is His very reputation is at stake. God's reputation is at stake. If you look at the first two verses, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. You know, in intercessory prayer, you know, when you pray for someone else, the congregation lifts up their hearts in unison, praying that God would answer their king's request. So it's kind of David's praying and then they're praying alongside him to for protection and for to be victorious there in in the battle. Now you notice the word Lord is in all capital letters. I mentioned this, I think it was Wednesday night. Um, when I was looking at a, it may have even been this same Psalm 20, I can't remember. But uh, in our English translations, whenever you see the word Lord in all capitals, if you have a good translation, it's an indication that this is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. And so this Psalm starts with a reference to the Lord, Yahweh, as the one who will pro protect them. You see the word uh, defend there, right in the middle of your screen. Uh, at the end, it's in th actually at the end of, of verse 1. It literally means to set on high. And in the ancient Near East, in the time of Israel's kings that David was serving in, strength was equated to having a high vantage point. I mean, they didn't have military arsenals. They didn't have, you know, 4,000 Humvees or, you know, other you know arsenal weapons and stuff that they could you know leave behind for the Taliban to take. They had rudimentary weapons, and and they had old school tactics. One of which was to be up at a high vantage point where you can see them coming, where you have the advantage. And in fact, that's why if you think about in Psalm 121, David says, "I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord." <laughs> in other words, he was saying in that. By the way, he said, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, my help doesn't come from the hills. Ultimately, it comes from God who made the hills. Um, but anyway, that was the culture. But in the Hebrew culture, the, 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 the person's name said something about them. It was synonymous with who they are, their character, their trustworthiness. In fact, you often see that they would change their names when a significant life event happened to commemorate that and to really embolden them and remind them of, of who they are. You see that carried over into the Jewish culture in the first century. Uh, 
as well. Remember, Saul was changed to Paul and so forth. Um, but the Jews so revered this personal name for God, Yahweh, the I Am, used over 6,000 times to refer to the one true God, the personal God, our, our God, that they would not vocalize it. Now, so whenever you see Lord in all caps in your English Bibles, that means it's Yahweh, as opposed to, say, Elohim, the formal name for God, or Adonai, sort of a more informal name for Lord that could be used both of God and any Lord or Master in a, in a human setting. This was reserved for God, the one true creator God, Yahweh, our personal God. And, and you know, Hebrew was a vocal language. It was not a written language. I mean, they had the scrolls where the prophets of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write, but they didn't have, everybody didn't have a copy of the scrolls that they would read from when they would recite the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures or sing, in this case, the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. It was always from memory. It was a vocal verbal language, not a uh, written language. And so when they would come to this word Yahweh, they would say instinctively Adonai, because out of reverence for God, they would not vocalize the name uh, Yahweh. Sometimes in our English Bibles, when you see the word Jehovah, that's also another way to render Yahweh. Instead of Lord in all caps, like you see on the screen, some English translations choose to use the word Jehovah. That also is an English way to signify Yahweh is the name that was mentioned there. Now, last November at Thanksgiving, I preached from Psalm 100, which is an anonymous psalm, and I talked about this same concept of the, the significance of the name Yahweh and how we got from the Hebrew word Yahweh to the English word Jehovah. Uh, and I, I, I'm going to take the time to do that again because I know we've got a lot of new people and it's really kind of a fascinating uh, transition. And it will also, I think, help uh, instill in your minds when you're reading the Word of God in English and you see the word Jehovah or you see it on you know, bumper stickers or posters or you hear people say the name Jehovah, you'll understand the significance that that's talking about uh, Yahweh. Uh, so if you go back to uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, of course, uh, they're written from right to left. So that's what Yahweh looks like. And this is Adonai, uh, the word Adonai. Now, as I mentioned, Hebrew was a spoken language, so it does not have vowels. There were no vowels in the Hebrew language. They didn't need them because they could see from this symbol, like the, the word on the left is, is Yahweh, Yod, Hate, Vav, Hate, four letters. They just would see that and they would know that that's Yahweh. But they wouldn't say Yahweh because out of respect for the Lord, they would say Adonai. But over here on the right, you notice these little markers? These are called vowel pointers. And what happened is around the 9th century A.D., so you know, 1,500 years, 2,000 years almost after David wrote the Hebrew script, his portion of the Hebrew Scriptures, a group of scribes, we call them the Masoretes, came along, uh, and they were based in, in uh, Jerusalem and Tiberias, and then there was a few actually in Babylon. But from the 7th through the 11th centuries A.D., uh, these scribes translated the Hebrew Scriptures uh, and they and copied them, copied the scrolls, and they began to be a proliferation of availability of scrolls. Remember, in 1947, we found all kinds of Hebrew scrolls from uh, in the around the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, but anyway, as they began to copy them, by that time, since you know the Jews had been scattered for 900 years, um, there were a lot of uh, you know new generations of Jews that 
hadn't had the same level of repetition and going through the feasts and the festivals and marching up to Jerusalem and singing these psalms together, who weren't as familiar with the language. So they went in, and this again was 900, you know, 9th century A.D., and they put these vowel pointers in to help remind people how to pronounce the certain words. So what's fascinating is because of the name Yahweh that was revered and you didn't vocalize it, Rather than putting vowel pointers that would symbolize, you know, A for Yah, Way, and E for Way, and so forth, they actually put intentionally the vowel pointers for Adonai in with the Hebrew word Yahweh. So if you were to transliterate these Hebrew letters and vowel pointers that you see on the screen, it would look like this. A Yod is transliterated as a J, the hate's an H, the Vav is a V, and the, the, the hate again is an H. Well, these vowel pointers, which came along centuries later, the... That's intended to signify an A sound, an O sound, and another A sound. So you've got these English consonants from Yahweh with these English vowel, what, what we would call vowels, which again were added later for Adonai, and you put them together, and you end up with what became known as Jehovah. So you take the consonants, and then you add the vowel pointers, and it was the resulting word of Jehovah. Since the vowel pointers didn't represent actual vowels, but just sort of sounds over time, and since the 9th century B.C. when they first did this, this word sort of morphed into Jehovah in our English Bibles. But there really is no such word as Jehovah. It's not a Hebrew word. It was a sort of a hybrid word from the Hebrew text, taking Adonai's vowel sounds and Jehovah's consonants, I mean Yahweh's consonants, and merging them together, and you came up with Jehovah. So when David says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, he's saying that Jehovah, Yahweh, is on our side. And, you know, through the years, uh, I mean, through the Old Testament, you had many times when at a critical moment in the history of Israel, or even in the early days with, with Abraham, uh, God would do something amazing or some significant event would happen and they would put up a marker or they would call the name of a place and they would use a compound name of God. They would take Yahweh, what in English we often call Jehovah, Yahweh, and they would put it with some other me means of indicating his character, something about him that we can count on that's part of his reputation. And these are called the compound names of God. I grew up, in, in, thankfully, by God's grace in a Christian family. And, and uh, for most of my uh, formative years from high school on, we were in a large uh, Baptist church in Houston. And uh, I can remember sitting in that auditorium. It sat about 1,200 people. It was actually what they called a gymatorium. And uh, after every service, we all had to take down the chairs and stack them. And then the, uh, the custodial crew would come in Monday and take the chairs on dollies and move them into this massive storage area and then you could play basketball and volleyball and other stuff that the church was used for during the week but I can still remember sitting in in that church under my home church pastor the one that licensed me to ministry when I was 15 years old W uh, brother Billy J Crosby uh, and seeing around the walls at one point while we were there they he felt led of the Lord to put up banners throughout the, the auditorium with the different compound names of God and uh, it really had an impact on me because you would be 
sitting there and your eyes would wander and you'd think about some of these different names of God and it told you something about who God is, the God that we serve. And so I'm just going to mention a few of these. These are not the actual banners. I don't know what happened uh, to those. The church has uh, changed names and moved through multiple pastors in the many decades since then. But obviously one that you're probably familiar with is Jehovah Jireh. Again, that's Yahweh Jireh in Hebrew, the God who provides. And this was commemorating the provision of the ram in place of Isaac when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to the Lord. Remember that in Genesis 22? Our God provides. Or Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. This was the name given to God when he made the bitter waters of Marah sweet for the children of Israel. Remember, they had just crossed the Jordan, just fled the Egyptians and gone on the other side of the, I'm sorry, the Red Sea, not the Jordan. The Red Sea, they just left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and they're in this desert and uh, they went three days without water. And God provided water when he turned the bitter waters sweet and they commemorated that and said God is Yahweh Rapha Jehovah Rapha the Lord that heals if you need healing come to Yahweh he's our healer or Jehovah Sidkenu our righteousness Jeremiah talked about this when he prophesied about the righteous branch Jesus Christ ultimately who would come and reign as king and it's only through him that we can be made righteous you know, the one thing we need more than anything else is to be righteous. In fact, Jesus said, you've got to be perfectly righteous to get into heaven. And the only way we can be that is by faith alone in Christ alone. And God gives us that righteousness. Or Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. We're going to talk about banners in just a second because David mentions them. But this was in honor of God's defeat of the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. God is our banner. We, he's over us. And, and protecting us, and we march and serve under His direction. Or Jehovah Shalom. Everybody knows a little Hebrew, right? Shalom, peace, right? And uh, the Lord is our peace. This is the name Gideon gave the altar which he built in Orphra after the angel of the Lord had appeared to him and, remember, commissioned him uh, to go out and do battle against the Midianites, and he defeated the Midianites in that incredible, miraculous battle. But even before that, David was a little nervous, and God had to show him the fleece, but right before that, God first called uh, Gideon, and uh, Gideon built this altar, and God gave Gideon a peace for what he was about to face. That's pretty powerful when you think about the battles that we're facing and may be facing as believers, and he is the Lord our peace, or Jehovah M. Kadesh, or the actual Hebrew is Makadeshim, but we usually abbreviate it Kadesh, the Lord our sanctifier. And this is expressed in the Old Testament laws in Exodus chapter 31, particularly the law, the Sabbath law. In other words, just as the seventh day was set aside under Jewish law, God sets us apart as special, unique, His people. And indeed, we are sanctified. We are a special group of people. Or Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there, referring to the city which the prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision in Ezekiel 48. And it was Jehovah Shammah, Yahweh Shammah, God is there. More than ever before, we need to know God is here. He's with us. Or Jehovah Savaioth, the Lord of hosts. We sang about that this morning. It was used in, in David's day to witness to God as the deliverer who is surrounded by heavenly hosts of angels and an army. 
Now, we can't see that unless, as Hebrews says, we happen to be entertaining a stranger who is an angel. But by and large, we don't see the heavenly realm. It's an unseen realm. And Paul in the New Testament tells us we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. But we need to understand that our God is the God of hosts who's up there leading an invisible army of angels. And he's the Lord of hosts. And uh, David talks about that in 1 Samuel. And then finally, and we could mention more of these, but I, I couldn't help but mention Jehovah Ra'ah because we talked about that in our first series through Psalms. Je the Lord our shepherd also used by David, who, who describes God metaphorically as one who provides and protects like a shepherd. Remember, he said the same thing that he says here in chapter 20, in, verse, in chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and it's his reputation that is at stake. God can be trusted because it's part of his namesake. It's who he is. He is trustworthy. His very reputation throughout history, uh, from the beginning of creation, validates his trustworthiness if you think back to psalm 23 most of you probably have it memorized it goes on to say in verse 3 he restores my soul he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake so we can trust god because his reputation is at stake secondly we can trust god because he remembers our faithfulness he remembers our faithfulness the psalm goes on to say in verse 3 may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. That word selah there is a, really, we don't know exactly what it means, but it's some type of a musical marker or technical notation with musical instruction. But David tells us the people lifted their voices to God concerning their king, him, and they prayed that God would give him success. And meal and burnt offerings of worship often accompanied prayers by God's people in the Old Testament, especially when they were praying for a help. It was a part of their worship. And the congregation prayed that the sacrifices which accompanied their prayers would be acceptable. Now today we don't offer sacrifices the same way, but we do offer sacrifices, don't we? It's completely appropriate to rehearse to the Lord the attitude of your heart and pray for the Lord's protection and help. So when we say, Lord, you know, remember all your, when they said, remember all your offerings, they're basically saying, Lord, remember, we've, we've followed you. We love you. We've worshiped you. Today, we might say, Lord, you know my heart. Lord, you know that I truly want to serve you. Lord, you know that I've done service to you. So now, Lord, pray, Lord I pray, please give me the fruit of my faithful labor. How do we offer sacrifices today? Well, the New Testament tells us at least a couple of ways. Uh, Peter says we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And those are things like walking in the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh, praying, uh, walking by faith, trusting Him daily. That's a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, your whole lives, in other words, are a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And when we do that, it is perfectly okay in our prayers to come to God as we're expressing our trust in Him and saying, Lord, remember my faithfulness. Not in a proud way or a self-serving way, but because we want to uh, express our trust in Him in that way. And 
We can trust God not only because His reputation is at stake and He remembers our faithfulness, but because He responds to our prayers. How many of you believe God answers prayer? Amen? We've seen it. Seen it all through our lives. We've, by an exponential amount, forgotten more times that God answered our prayer than, when, than, than we can re even possibly recall. Uh, but the, the psalm goes on, May He grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The people prayed that King's day, King David's heart's desire would be fulfilled and his plans be successful. Those worshipers that were assembled there in the congregation voiced their confidence that God would indeed answer their prayers. They anticipated shouting for joy over their triumph. And then they repeated their intercession in support of this prayer. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Notice that word banners there. Uh, God, we, in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. When the soldiers went out to war, they marched according to their tribes, and each tribe had a banner of its own, a distinctive banner, according to Numbers chapter 2. And uh, so as we, as we go forth today, our banner is God. God's the one setting up the banner. We're not still part of the children of Israel with the tribes and doing those things like they did in that culture. But God is our banner. And I love this idea of the desires of your heart. You, know, you see that a lot in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. In fact, in the very next Psalm, Psalm 21, which is also written by David, he uses that same phrase. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, talking there about deliverance from an enemy, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. And then, of course, who can forget Psalm 37? Trust in the Lord, also by David, and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Watch this. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. This, this verse has been a source of encouragement and strength and comfort to believers for many, many, many years. See, God can be trusted because he hears our prayers and wants to do us good, only good, by the way. He wants to give us the desires of our hearts. And when we pray for that, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's in the process of our prayer that God might change the desires of our heart. And we don't even realize it, right? You ever look back and suddenly remember something you used to want, but you've forgotten you ever even wanted it? And now what you do want, God gives you, and you're so blessed and so pleased and so thankful to God. When's the last time you prayed something like this? Lord, I really want this. You know my heart. I'm not being selfish. I'm not saying I deserve it. I'm not self-absorbed. I'm just being real, God. My heart longs for such and such. Perfectly fine. And if in the process of that prayer there is any selfishness or self-absorbed attitudes, the Lord and the Holy Spirit will correct that and mold and shape that. But we see that again and again. Job is a classic example of a believer who prayed for God to give him his desires. He said, oh, that I might have my request, that God might grant me the thing that I long for. When's the last time you prayed in that way? You know? Uh, well, so we can trust God because his reputation is at stake. He remembers our faithfulness. He responds to our prayers. But get this, he also rules over all of our circumstances. 
He also rules over all of our circumstances. Verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed, talking there about David, the king, the leader of this battle. Saves meaning delivers or rescues. He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. David was confident he would be successful in the coming conflict because he was the Lord's anointed. In Hebrew, the word anointed literally means commissioned one. In other words, David knew that God had a plan for his life and that God would not let him down, whatever the circumstances. He knew that God was in control. David was God's commissioned one. He was, he was part of God's plan. God is sovereign. In other words, God is in charge of our circumstances. Of course, this didn't mean that David or us, that we have a free pass to live and act however we want. But it does mean that God's in charge. And if David had been guilty of sin, God might not have given him the victory. Maybe God would have disciplined him in that moment. But David believed that he was clean and that the intercession of his people, he felt, gave him even more confidence and strength to emerge as the victor because God was in control. He rules over our circumstances. Going back to Job, uh, again, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job said. A classic example of trusting in God no matter what. And Paul in Romans says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now that's the kind of rock-solid, unwavering trust that we can have in our God. And then finally, uh, and this is the passage that I talked about Wednesday night, verse 7, we can trust God because he's more reliable than every other alternative. He's more reliable than every other alternative. David goes, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In contrast with those who trust in military equipment, David trusted in the Lord. He repudiated confidence in the most sophisticated physical implements of war in his day, which were chariots. Not everybody had chariots. That was like the, you know, the ICBMs or whatever of, of their day. Instead, he affirmed his reliance on the Lord himself for victory. Notice again that reference to the name of the Lord our God. The Lord's reputation is at stake. It's his character and nature that's at stake. And David gained confidence as he meditated on his God. Now, notice the word trust. I don't have it highlighted, but it says some trust in chariots and some in horses. Again, if you have a good English translation, you'll notice that that word is italicized, the word trust in your English Bible. That's an indication that it's not in the original Hebrew. Sometimes in our English translations, to smooth out the reading, we will insert uh, a, a word. A wooden reading, if you were just to read it sort of woodenly in a, a literal word-for-word -word way, it would say, some, in chariot, or some chariots, some horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The word trust is implied from the context. However, the real key word here is that word remember. Again, if we read it without uh, the words in italics, some chariots, some horses, but we remember God. That's who we remember. The word remember is the Hebrew word zakar, or zakar actually. It means to keep in memory, to ponder, to make known. It's used 222 times in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, basically what David is saying here is, contemplation of the Lord builds confidence in Him. You know, some people are 
you know, gloating over how strong their horses are or how well-oiled their chariots are. I'm remembering my God who's rescued me a time and time again. And even though I'm going to use these tools that he's provided, my faith is not in them. The object of David's faith was in the name of the Lord. And David was meditating, pondering, and also proclaiming. In fact, if you have a New American Standard English translation, uh, instead of the word remember for Zachar, it says boast. He says, you know, some chariots, some horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord. We make him known because we know what he's done for us before. You know, David, uh, uh, or this is actually an anonymous psalm, Psalm 33, he says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. In fact, a horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver you in, in, in any by its great strength. In other words, you might trust in that horse, but what happens if the horse comes up lame? Then where do you turn? God's never going to come up lame. God's never going to get thirsty or need grass or just need a rest. His saddle's never going to get crooked or fall off. <laughs> See, So you need those things. Uh, in fact, Proverbs tells us the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. I talked about that Wednesday night in my preparedness continuum. How, how, how about some people go to the extreme and say, well, I, I can handle this. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to move to a mountaintop. I'm going to dig a hole. I'm going to get an underground bunker. I'm going to handle it all on my own. I don't need God. And that's wrong. Other people go to the other extreme on the continuum and have this presumption of, I don't need to prepare. I don't need to do anything. God's got this. I'll just trust God. You know. But we need balance. And this verse expresses that balance. And it expresses David's balance between trusting in God and his own implements of war. The horse is prepared for battle, but the deliverance is of the Lord. A Psalm 44 is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Remember, they wrote some of the psalms as we talked about. I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. And in God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. What bows and swords are you hanging on to in the face of trouble? Now, don't get me wrong. We live in a fallen world. There's bad people. You need to take steps to prepare and protect yourself. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's biblical. In fact, Jesus told the disciples, uh, you know, right before he was betrayed, look, if you have a knapsack, here's a suggest. This is Jesus' words. He told his disciples, if you have a knapsack, you might want to sell it and buy a sword. <laughs> Because it's going to get tough. And that was 2,000 years ago. But never forget who our ultimate trust is in. Our trust is in God. His reputation is at stake. He remembers our faithfulness. He responds to our prayers. He rules over every circumstance. And ultimately, he's more reliable than any, every other alternative. So what's the takeaway? Just three little reminders. First of all, never forget who you're dealing with. God. God. You know, we've created a smaller, more impotent God in our world today. And we need to be reminded He's still God. Remember that He is in full control of your circumstances. And then seek Him first in every situation. You know, We're seeking some answers right now. Seeking, trying to find a house and trying, you know, like everybody, praying for different needs and desires of your heart in life. 
And every once in a while, the Lord will just tap me on the shoulder and remember, and say, remember, trust me. You can't solve all your problems on your own. And I'm a guy that likes to solve problems. But trust me. And in my time and in my way, I'll bring you through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, psalm. And Lord, just for the great encouragement that it is to me every time I read it. And I pray that these words would really uh, dig deep into the hearts of everybody uh, listening today and everybody here in the church today. uh, That it would really comfort and encourage us. Uh, to remember that in a day when deception is so powerful, when even young children are lying just without any regard for the truth, there's someone that we can always trust, and that's you. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that hasn't placed their faith first and foremost in you for their eternal salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life, I pray that they would take that important first step so that they can then live a life of faith and trust in the one who saved them and gave them the free gift of eternal life. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.